This episode of Burn the Haystack is sponsored, somewhat ironically, by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology. Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is a podcast to help you save the best and burn the rest of your culture and your faith practices. And today we have an incredible guest who I've known for quite a while now, I, I realize. But uh, yep, very exciting to have him on the show. Hmm. When do you, well, yeah, our guest today obviously is Nathan Brown. How long have you known him? Because I, I haven't known Nathan for that long. I only kind of know him from official Adventist stuff. Yeah, well, I think that the first time... I was, we were actually talking about it after we recorded the episode, and I was trying to work out, like, the first time I met him, and I'm pretty sure it was... So, I graduated from high school in 2009, and then there was that school holidays, and then I went to, like... I went and volunteered at a bunch of summer camps during those holidays. Um, and then at the end of those, there was, like, a youth camp, which was just for, like, 18-plus... And I'm pretty sure that's where I met him because he was the speaker for that. I'm pretty sure that's the first ah, time. So, 10 go. years. 10 years ago it's now. A, it is a small world in the Adventist world, especially here in the South Pacific. So, there you go. <laughs> yep. Yep. And back then, I didn't really understand what he did. And now I'm like, wow, I really get it. That's, it was a really big deal having him there. Mm. So, yeah, <laughs> it was really cool. So, yeah, today we talked to Nathan. Um, he is, well, he's quite a, a renowned and, uh, you know, experienced writer, author, um, editor at Science Publishing in the South Pacific here, which is super cool. Um, but a few months ago, he got in touch with us and said, hey, I wrote this book. Um, would you like to have a look at it? And maybe we can talk about it. And so we were like, yeah, sweet as. And so we read the book and it's all about his sort of like a memoir, you know, like it's mm. such a, I like saying that word, it's, it's a memoir um, <laughs> of his time in the, in the Holy Lands. And uh I, as somebody who's never been to the Holy Lands, I was initially like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's just kind of like, we went to this place and we went to that place and this is where Jesus did the thing and this is where Moses did that other thing. And But I really enjoyed it. It was um, it was a very um, unexpected book for me. I don't know about you, Josh, but it was, it, was, it was somewhat unexpected, the sort of content that came out of that book. Yeah, I would agree. I would say, like, reading it, I remember thinking, like, when I first sort of got it, I was thinking, oh, yeah, like... I mean, I've heard of people's stories from the Bible lands before. I'm sure it'll just be a lot of the same stuff. But it, it really wasn't. It was, like you said, it kind of like caught me caught me off guard. I was like, wow, this has actually really been actually a, a, quite a meaningful read to me. Um, and again, I also haven't been to the Bible lands. Also, my friends have. I've seen lots of their photos. Yes, I've seen you sitting yeah. at KFC across from the pyramids. I've seen it. <laughs> but um, It's infuriating. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and I want to go. But this was like a really, I don't know, cool experience. What the heck? Sorry, Siri just... I don't know what. I think I just set Siri off and it started telling me the score between the Cavaliers and the Hornets from like 1996 or something. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> that was bizarre. Uh, anyway, uh, Cavaliers and Hornets aside, I... um, Yeah, I think it was... 
I, I, I feel like I can safely push people and say, if you want to take the cheapest Bible Lens trip available, this book is for you. <laughs> yes. Yes, 100%. And it's 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 written by primarily Nathan, but also he has two other co-authors and they have a really interesting way of bringing life and refl- they're very reflective. Um, yeah. And that is really, really helpful for people like us who have never been to actually kind of grasp with our, you know, five senses exactly what it's like to to be over there and to experience the um the the multitude of you know sights and smells and 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 you know all that sort of stuff which is i i found really really helpful and also it just sparked off so many little theological and and personal thoughts in my head especially around yep. those key areas you know like lake of galilee and you know the the um the, the garden where jesus is betrayed and all that sort of stuff yeah yeah and i i think i don't i don't think i have the same sort of skill in in reflecting that the authors do. Do you know, like, I, I have an experience where, like, oh, yeah, that was cool, and then I sort of just move on. But <laughs> they're all really good at sitting there reflecting on things, which maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a, just an art that I don't have <laughs> and I need to get better at it. Um, so it was kind of cool, I guess, in that regard, just learning how to be reflective and trying to think through, how did they think of this? It's really insightful. Um, mm. So, yeah, and Nathan's been, what, three times or something? This is his third yeah, trip. So, yeah. obviously, some different reflections from him, too. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a really, really good read. It's obviously a recommended book from us now. Um, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, hey, without further ado, um, let's just jump into it. Here is our conversation with Nathan Brown. Enjoy. All right, Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. (laughs) This has been uh, a while in the making, and I'm excited that we're finally sitting down with the Nathan Brown Mm. um, to talk about all things falafels, all things Jesus, all things Bible lands. Um, It's really exciting. So uh, we're so excited to have you here. Um, I wonder that you've been talking at me for the last few months as I've been listening regularly to the podcast, so it's <laughs> kind of cool to get to have a word back again, just for a change. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, we're honestly so grateful. Um, yeah, I don't know that, that you've listened and um, yeah, it's it's awesome to have someone along who's been along for the journey and everything and uh, yeah, it's really cool. Um, but just for the, the few people listening who don't know who you are, um, can you just tell us a little bit about... Uh, where you fit in, um, what what your role is um, in your ministry. Yeah, well, I'm not the one and only Nathan Brown because there's many of them in the world. Um, (laughs) It's a pretty common kind of name. Uh, There used to be at least two that played in the uh, AFL in Australia and um, one that played in the NRL. So, you know, Nathan Brown Mm. kind of needs some definition for most people, I'd expect. Um, (laughs) And you weren't any of those Nathan Browns? (laughs) No, I'm afraid not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) just checking. So my day job is um, I work as book editor at Science Publishing Company, which is the church's Seventh-day Adventist Church's publishing house in Australia, Um, Mm -hmm. and kind of have worked there for 15 years, which makes me sound old. (laughs) makes me feel a little old. Um, And have worked as a magazine editor and a writer and you know, now a book editor and a few other things along the way. So reading, writing were hobbies that took over my life. Mm. Uh, based in Warburton, just out of Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, have a, I'm married to Angela, who's a horse trainer by trade. Wow. And 
which is an interesting thing, yeah. which the, the implication on my life means that I pick up a lot of horse poo from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It's good. <laughs> so, oh, well, so oh, that's, that's, have you always been a, um, a journalist sort of, has that always been your trade or did you become a journalist sort of after a little while in your life? I actually, out of school, I studied law and worked in law offices for a few years before I retired and um, then was really trying to work out what do I do with my life. And I was asked a few years ago at a youth camp to give my testimony and I was kind of, you know, I've always grown up going to church and for me, my testimony has been finding that thing to do in the world that makes sense with what I enjoy doing and what can make a contribution to others and writing became that. Um, so that has been a process over a number of years. I've been writing for about 20 years um, on a pretty serious and regular basis. And um, yeah, 15 or so years ago, I had the opportunity to work in an office that involved lots of writing. So it's kind of cool when you get to do something that you really enjoy for much of your job. Hmm. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so I guess uh, one, one thing I'm thinking about is somebody who, who writes a lot. Um, I'm guessing you, you obviously read a lot too. Yes. <laughs> um, what's a, can you think of a book or a couple of books that you've recommended to people lately, like some of your top recommendations? Now, how long a list do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just keep it to your top three. <laughs> top three books that I think everybody needs to read, um, The Cross and the Lynching Tree uh, by James Cone. That will change how you look at the world, how you understand the Bible and understand Jesus. Um Underworld is my favourite novel. It's a big, uh, massive novel by Don DeLillo. That's um, kind of a a brief summary of the second half of the twentieth century, told through the story through following a baseball. Um, mm. So that's kind of fun. Mm. And um, the other writer that I just totally admire for how they write and what they do is um, Marilyn Robinson and her book Gilead. Um, that was the main one, and she's had a few couple before and after. And her writing is just so poetic. And as the atheist writer uh, Nick Hornby once put it, she he, he explained her writing that it helped it make sense of how believing in God could be possible. Oh wow, that's high praise from an atheist. That's pretty high praise from Nick Hornby, who's a pretty great writer himself. Yeah. Um, based an English writer but um, yeah so Marilyn Robinson's stuff is like just so poetic and beautiful that it just feels like she's kind of crafted each word out of stone um, but it's so readable at the same time mm. it's as a she's she's a writer's writer mm. <laughs> oh, that's cool mm. Mm. Well, are there any um, are there any writers that have influenced I'm sure all those three have influenced you but your particular mm. style, your voice as a writer. What are the writers that have influenced you in your writing? Well, just everything you read influences you. Um, but I really, I guess one of my, my favourite genre of writing is uh, creative nonfiction where you pull in all the parts of good storytelling which include descriptions that bring in all the senses, so sight, sound, um, you know, all those kind of tastes, smells, all those kind of things but use it to tell a true story and to make a point and to move people uh, through doing that. So um, there's so many good examples of that in the world. Um, I mean, a recent one that is also pretty poetic in its own tragic way is Beirut's Bukhani's book, 
um, No Friend But the Mountains, which was written by text message um, from Manus Island, where he's kept as a detainee, as a refugee that tried to come to Australia. Wow. Um, and that book's won a couple of awards, and it's just such an amazing piece of writing. But even more so when you consider that he wrote it one te- on, you know, on a WhatsApp app, you know, one sentence at a time. Um, that's just incredible. And uh, <laughs> wow. you can't more of that. And um, his story is quite a great story in, in a tragic way. Um, mm. how he's been able to tell his story, um, you know, in really difficult circumstances. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so many. I mean, I read, you know, as much as I can, as often as I can. And um, so, yeah, there's so many, you know, everything you read is an influence on your writing. Um, and there are some writers that you just pick up what they do and you say, hey, that's the kind of writing I like to, you know, I'd like to be able to do one day when I grow up. Mm. And I still like that and uh, <laughs> and so then you follow through what they do and you know one of the writers that caught my attention a few years ago was david foster wallace who was just an extreme postmodern kind of writer in the sense of what he did um but um you know wrote also wrote, you know in his novels but also wrote you know quite lengthy and in-depth and intricate non-fiction which yeah, as I said, is probably my favourite genre of writing when you do that really well to tell a story about the world and make people see and feel something different. Mm. Hmm. Well, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I think like because for me, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I've not, I haven't been a big reader. My life has only sort of been in the last few years. Obviously, getting into ministry and that kind of thing, you have to do a lot of reading. Um, but I guess most of what I read is, um, I guess, nonfiction. But it's not, you know, it, it's more like. I guess like a theology book or self-help book kind of things like that, that sort of. Um, so I know for me reading your most recent book um, of falafels and following Jesus, I found it like a nice actual, I guess a bit of a shift from everything else I've been reading. And it was like, man, I've, you kind of forget, like if you get too tied down to one genre, you sort of forget how many amazing genres and, and messages that people can tell in other ways. Um yeah, yeah. So I was. That's really cool to to hear about that creative. What are, creative nonfiction stories? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually did a master's in writing a few years ago, and um, sort of my my specialty was that creative nonfiction genre, and so that's something that mm. I've tried to develop in practice because writing, as much as anything else, is simply about practice practicing it and getting better at it. Mm. And um, so, yeah. I kind of mentioning the Falafels book, which is kind of what we're trying to talk about and we're getting to. But yeah, um, yeah that's in a sense is travel writing. And I was, you know, when I had this idea of saying, well, how could I share what you learn from a journey through some of these places that we only hear about, you know, distantly? Uh, I went looking to see if anybody had written a book like that and I couldn't find much. Um, so I looked at that and I guess one of my writing models in that sense was Bill Bryson and his travel writing, which is always lots of fun. And he, you know, his book, um, Down Under or A Sunburnt Country, depending on which side of the world it was published in, is just that fun kind of, you know, a little bit cynical, but also brings in some history and some observations and just his experiences of those places and then draws some kind of point out of it. And that was what I was trying to do. 
that's really that's cool. Awesome. So what was your process? I'm, I'm interested to get into the actual nitty gritty of the book because there are so many, you know, things we can talk about. But what was your process in writing of falafels? Was Were, were you writing as you went along, you know, keeping diaries or what, what was the um, process for you like? Yeah, well, it was a fun experience because it was just very intense. I, um, I had this, I first had the idea when I was traveling in Israel in 2015 and I, I, the first part of it was trying to figure out why people go on trips to Israel and Palestine and these places. What are we hoping to get from them? Because we don't have this theology of holy places and going and touching a holy stone and so suddenly, you know, that gives you some kind of righteousness or brownie points mm -hmm. with God might be. So why do we do it? And then even in our sort of non-traditional church in that sense. We've often sponsored pastors and church leaders and evangelists to go and visit these places. So what have we been hoping that they get? And that was kind of the puzzle I was trying to wrestle with. And when that clicked for me, I said, ah, I get it. Then I took the next step and said, how can we share that with people who will never have the opportunity to do it? Um, so that was the challenge of writing. And so I specifically went on this trip last year uh, to write the book and so I did a heap of reading before I went I'd had the opportunity to have been to some of those places previously and so that was good background as well you know the best kind of research but then I just wanted to tell the story of what it was like to go spend a couple of weeks traveling through Jordan Israel and Palestine and to explore why what you see what you do what it feels like to be there today but also what's its spiritual and biblical significance and so when I was there I started writing on the plane on the way over and um, wrote every morning and night um, as well as doing a full, very full-on tour and doing as much of all the things that you try and do when you're on a trip like that. Um, wrote probably three-quarters of it in the two weeks that, of the trip. Wow. And wow. then finished it off, had about eight hours sitting in an airport on my way home um, and then a few days after in the week I got back then went back and rewrote particularly some of the early sections because part of the fun of writing this is you start writing the first couple of days of the journey and you don't know how it ends mm. and you mm. don't know what the ideas are that are going to develop as you continue working through it. So having sort of then f written the last part of the book and some of the themes that did emerge as I kept um, exploring it by writing it, um, I went back and you know, was able to expand upon some of the first two or three days that I'd written, you know, very green, very fresh, just off the plane, struggling with jet lag and trying <laughs> to um, what was going on and what we were doing and all those things. So it was a fun writing experience just because it was so intense, but it also changed how I experienced those places because I was taking just such you know, I was, I'd make notes every time we got on the bus after visiting a place and I'd be taking photos of obscure little things so I could remember that to describe it. Um, so my photos from that trip are terrible. You don't want to see them. <laughs> and, um, yeah, just a really full-on experience that changed my, my focus on visiting those places because I was so intent on sharing them with the reader that one day would, um, you know, be a, connect with the book. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, I think, and I think the reason I valued this, I mean, I haven't been on a Bible lands trip personally. Um, so I feel like you could pitch this book to people as this is the cheapest Bible lands trip you'll ever take. Um, <laughs> not that it's a cheap experience. It's like a cost efficient experience. So I was, 
But I really valued it because I think most of the time when I talk to people, like I remember talking to my friends when they came back from the Bible lands and I was like, oh, how was it? Tell me everything about it. Um, and they'll be like, oh, it was good. I liked this place. Oh, this was interesting. And then that's kind of about all you get because, you know, it's such a rush of experiences and almost like a sensory overload. So this for me was, I felt like a really different experience because it was like a slow reflection on each place. Um, and you just don't get that a lot. When yeah. you ask that question of your friend who'd come back, there's sort of, well, are you going to sit down for the next four hours and tell you the stories? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That doesn't happen very often, but that's what this book True. is. That's sitting down for that four hours or however long it might take you to read it. And, um, and actually having that in-depth, step-by-step. Um, and I wanted to feel just a little bit like what it would feel like to, to get what it does feel like to go on a trip like that. Mm-hmm. So that was why I wanted to have that immediacy to it and uh, why you know, it was important to me to really try and do it while I was there and in that moment and because that's what I wanted it to share. Mm. Well, mm. I, know, I know for you know, Josh and myself, um, like us, the vast majority of our podcast audience has never been to the Bible lands. Probably the vast majority will never go. Um, mm. So, when I think of the people who read the Bible um, or they hear the stories in Sabbath school or in Sunday school or whatever, there's, I, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of misconceptions and presuppositions that go into kind of envisioning what the, you know, like, like what is the biblical landscape? What does the Holy Land landscape look like? What are, what's it like to be there? You know, is it just like Melbourne, but with, <laughs> with camels, like, you know, and, and you've been, you've been to, um, you've been like, is it three times, two or three times now? So you've had a, this was my third trip. Yeah. yeah. So you've had a, you've had a pretty good dunking then into, into the culture and into all that sort of stuff. What, um, what what are some of the misconceptions that perhaps you had, or that you've you know witnessed other people having um, going in blind? You know, not not yeah, sort of yeah. yeah having any sort of preparation or yeah. What what are some of those misconceptions? And one of one of the things that I did add to the book is my co-authors um, Michelle Villas and Brenton Stacy. They were both first timers, and mm. so the I gave them the brief just write some little pieces about the things that catch your attention or change how you read a story or whatever it might be so that we could have even some of that fresher perspective than what I brought. And so I was kind of the solid narrator along the way, but then their voices just give some different perspectives, which I really liked how the book came together in that way. Um, So they were first-timers, and so I, you know, we, we had some good conversations and I had the opportunity to, Kind of have that have a little of that first time experience again through their eyes, and um, yeah. So I mean, just I mean, the first thing is just some of the little things like how close together all the places are. Mm. Um, coming from Australia, we think that everything's a long way away, um, but the reality is that from Jerusalem to Galilee is you know not much more than a couple of hours drive when it comes down to it. Now, in Jesus' time, of course, it's eight days' walk, but um, in you know today you can do a day trip from Jerusalem up to Galilee and see a lot of the places and be back at your hotel that afternoon if that's what you want to do, if that's how you want to see the country. So one that is just very compact as far as, you know, and all these different stories from the Bible are kind of laid on top of each other. So 
a lot of places that you go to, there'll be the Old Testament, or there'll be even the prehistory, and then the Israelite story, and then the New Testament story, and then another few layers of history since the New Testament times, and all of those are in the same spot. And so you mm. keep, you're tripping over all these different layers of history at the same time. And sometimes that's really interesting when you're reading a story of, of perhaps Jesus doing something in a particular place, but you recognize that that place was also the same place that something happened in the Old Testament. And so that changes even, you know, Jesus might have made a comment where he, um, you know, references, you know, an Old Testament story. He might actually have been just down the road from where that happened. Mm. Um, and so the people he was talking to are well aware of that. And so it changes the context in which we can read some of the stories. One of the other things that uh, some members in our group this um, pastime, uh, this, this recent trip said, we were amazed by how steep it all is. <laughs> that's just something we don't think about very often. Um, there's a lot of up and down in the story. And um, Jerusalem's kind of the top of the, you know, was almost the highest point in in the main part of Israel, in the Jewish nation. Um, so you were always going up to Jerusalem for Passover or some of these other things, but you literally were going up. It was a climb. Yeah. And, you know, from the Dead Sea, and Jericho is just down near the Dead Sea, it's the lowest place on the planet. Mm. And then you go at 1,200 metres or so, um, elevation change from 400 metres below sea level to something you know, even a thousand or a little bit more than that above sea level where Jerusalem is. So to go from the road from, you know, Jericho up to Jerusalem is a pretty hefty climb mm. and, you know, things like that. The other thing is the amazing uh, change of countryside. You know, we often think of these places as, as desert. You know, that's kind of a lot of what the Bible stories, you know, suggest. And, of course, there is a fair bit of that in the process. But by the time you get to... Uh, up to Galilee and some of those places, it's actually incredibly fertile land um, and an amazing variety of orchards and crops. And, you know, even right up further north above Gal Galilee, there's, you know, things that are almost rainforests. And, of wow. course, to Mount, Mount Hermon, you can go skiing. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a crazy. ski field within sight of the Syrian and Lebanon on border so it's not always the, the, the safest place to be um, but you know there is actually a ski fields in Israel and um, another thing that we don't think think about a whole lot yeah that's one thing that's always tripped me up about about Israel is I see I see these photos of like you know the valley where David killed Goliath and all that sort of stuff and it's all rocks and sand and I'm like why in the world would people settle there? Like, why in the world would people actually want to live in this desert place? Like, it just doesn't make any sense at all. But obviously, mm. it does make sense if, you know, a couple thousand years ago, A, it wasn't a desert, or B, people were actually living in places that they could cultivate, you know, crops yeah. and, you know, animals and all that sort of stuff. That's, yeah, funny. And that's much more where the, where the, when the people actually settled on the land and they became farmers and some of these things, like a lot of the shepherds and the goat herders and those kind of people that are part of the early stories, they tended to be in the more desert-type places and they were more nomadic because they went where the feed was for their animals, which mm. you know, when you talk about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that's their story. But when they come into the land and they settle, they become farmers and they... You know, they grow grain and they, you know, have fig trees and date palms and olive trees and all of those things. So, um, you know, a lot of different variety of countryside, even within a relatively small area. 
Wow. Yeah, and I guess it just I guess it can really shift your understanding. Uh, one of the I mean, one of the really interesting things you noted a couple of times in the book was that there are eucalyptus trees. And for me, I was just like, what? Like, why would there be eucalyptus trees? You know, like that's such a it just feels so Australian. It's it's kind of odd to think that well, those... I think they have been imported there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so they particularly Australia had it has a has a place in the history of Israel, particularly during the first and second world wars. And um, I think around that time, some of these Australian plants were uh, transplanted there and they actually, but they, it suits the climate so well. And so there's one place in particular, up, which is the Ardenet baptismal site, which is just south of the Sea of Galilee. And it's one of these places where a lot of the tour, tours stop and people can get baptised in the Jordan River. And, you know, it's a little bit of a commercial kind of trap, but... Um, you know, p- people find it meaningful because they have the opportunity to be baptised in that river. Um, but the first time I went there with my wife, we were just totally blown away of how much it looked like an outback Australian creek. <laughs> wow. Floating <laughs> gum trees and um, kingfishers and a lot of different birds like that. And then, you know, there was this solemn baptismal moment going on with our group and we got totally blown away because we saw an otter swimming across the creek. So, yeah, <laughs> we got distracted too easily. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it was cool because I think reading that, I mean, I'd, I'd never heard that before. I didn't know they were there. So that was sort of a really a first for me. But it kind of, I guess it was a cool feeling because I felt like my my homeland and the homeland of Jesus had sort of somehow like come together. And in a way, it was kind of a cool thought about the, you know, the gospel going to, to the whole world. And yep. I don't know, it almost feels like the whole world is going back to the gospel again. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting like back and forth there. So I just find that absolutely fascinating. Mm. And one of the fascinating things, and this is picking up on that comment and broadening it out a whole lot more, is that one of the things you do is that you are constantly confronting all the other pilgrims and tourists that are there from everywhere in the world. And so you get this kind of picture of, you know, this this promise that Jesus made or command, whichever way you want to look at it, Mm. that this gospel will go to the whole world the whole world is there focused on it. And, mm. you know, so many different cultures and faiths, but all there simply because of what happened there, the story of Jesus. And so people who, you know, it's one of the things that's surprising from a from a faith perspective is that the dominant faith groups there are actually the Eastern Orthodox, uh, such as Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, uh, Armenian Orthodox, all of those kind of things. The most common faith, uh, Christian faith in Israel is the Greek Orthodox community, and most of the churches are Orthodox of some description. And that's a part of Christianity that, from my perspective, um, is pretty unfamiliar to me. And so you have all these different expressions of Christianity, you know, and even when you go to the, some of the baptismal sites, you have people that are getting fully immersed, you're getting people that are getting sprinkled, you've got people that are ducking themselves under. All of the different <laughs> mm. traditions are all happening all in the one pit, uh, stretch of river. Wow. I love I love how you reference um, uh, the, that church in, in Nazareth that has all the different um, impressions of Jesus from different... What was that church called? Uh, it's the Church of the Annunciation, which is built over a, a small first century house that by tradition was uh, the place where the angel appeared to Mary and said, you will have a son and yeah. you'll call him Jesus. Yeah. 
And so it, it's very focused on, you know, Mary as the mother of Jesus. And so, yeah, they've got, um, and there is the Australian one there that has lyrebirds in it and some of those kind of things. So that makes well, it gives you a little bit of, you know, national pride. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's all these different that are done kind of in the, you know, the Japanese one looks like a Japanese silk painting and, you know, all these different expressions of how the story of Jesus has gone from that tiny little village up in, you know, the hill country of Galilee um, right around the world. And that mm. kind of blows you away when you stop and think about it like that, that this story is so insignificant in itself. Mm. But it is truly something that has changed the world and just all these expressions of it that you see all over the place are, mm. you know, are reminders of that. Yeah, I really, um, I love that. And you, you kind of come back to that almost at the at the end of the book where you um, you make reference of Jesus talking to his disciples uh, in Matthew sixteen fifteen, you know, who do you say I am? That sort of stuff, and just reflecting mm-hmm. on the, you know, the international, the multicultural, and yeah, you know, multi ethnic reach that the the Jesus story is. I really love how you say um, in page one hundred and sixty eight that confronted with the multiplicities of Christianity and its many exp- expressions and adherence. This is the question we must ever come back to to explore, answer, and respond for ourselves. So how does that, you know, expression, all these different expressions, um, how does that impact and, and really inform the way that you've come to, to view Jesus? Because I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, on some level, it must be some, something of a sensory overload to have all these different interpretations <laughs> of the one sort of thing, you know, like all yeah. these different, you know, interpretations must be so overwhelming. Yeah, and there is a sense and and of course there's not just the Christian things there, there's also, you know, when you're in Jerusalem, for example, there's also the Jewish faith and the Muslim faith there that hold those places, you know, it's the holiest place in the world for Jewish people. The Temple Mount is the third or the mosque up there and the Dome of the Rock is the third holy most holiest place for um Muslim people. So you have all these faiths that are just thrown together there. And um, there's one sense in which it's just incredible. There's another sense which it is pretty overwhelming and even discouraging because it's there's not, you know, there's there's no simple way through it. Um, there's no way of, you know, it can be challenging to to uh, to us. You know, we come there with our story, but there's so many other stories kind of built around and based around these same places and these same you know, the same geography and even the same history, uh, but they look so different and they are expressed so differently and people respond so differently, even while, you know, at least in in some sense, all worshipping the same God. Mm. And that's a that's a massive thing to try and wrestle with and, and it really does, this confronts you with it um, because there's not only is the, the reality of today, there's the tragic history of what's gone on there, you know, for the past three, four thousand years, and particularly even in the last, um, you know, 70 years that Israel has been there as a state and the tensions there between, you know, Jews and Christians and Muslims uh, in some of these places that are the most holiest places and they're the places that everybody fights over. Mm. So, you know, and that's really the reality even, you know, in churches. If nobody cares, nobody fights. But because everybody cares, everybody is focused on, you know, I need to make sure that my perspective on this or my claim to this is respected. So 
Yeah, there's some ways that fighting is a healthy thing because it's each of us standing up for something that we believe is truly important. But there's also, an, you know, it's ultimately a destructive thing if we if we do it the wrong way, if we get to the point where we actually hurt each other in that process. So all of these things are just swirling around you all the time when you're visiting these places. Wow. <laughs> really. And I think bouncing off that, um, one of my probably favorite sections in the book, um, if I'm allowed to have favorite sections in the book, um, <laughs> but was was actually um, kind of earlier on uh, when you guys were opening Sabbath by the wall. Um, that for me, I just, I, I, I reread those last couple of paragraphs on page uh, 77. I reread those just a couple of times just because I was like, man, that's so, that's so interesting for me. Um, you know, I, just, to, just to read a bit of it. Um, because Sabbath is holy time, it is the great leveler. Sabbath comes to everyone everywhere equally, not just to those privileged to be able to travel to a holy place or who happens to live nearby. Just that idea of this, you know, it's, it's, it's not about a place. It's actually this sacred time. And yeah, the idea of it being a great leveler. Um, but I guess it must have been quite confronting for you um, opening Sabbath by the wall and seeing what was going on there. <laughs> it's it's a fascinating experience and I guess one of the the you know it's one of the cultural phenomenon of the world to be there you know at that time because there's just all this history that is invested in that place you know the mm-hmm. Jews believe that all the prayers in the world travel around the world and then ascend to heaven from that wall um so for them, it's the holiest place in the world, but also a place of lament and remembering what they've lost. And so when they get together and celebrate Sabbath, there's all of those things mixed in their history, the, um, you know, still their claim to be chosen people and all of those things. Um, but they do it with joy and solemnity at the same time. Um, you know, sometimes I think I described it a sort of cross between a, a political rally and a soccer field and a worship, you know, a soccer crowd and a worship <laughs> service. Just things kind of thrown in together um, because they're the flags, but there's also the, you know, they're reading the psalms and they're singing together, and you know, you'll get the circles of men kind of, you know, dancing around and 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 women on the other side of the the divide there because they are split up, even though all are equal at the wall. Um, <laughs> That's ironic. It's one of the, it's one of those things that, from an ad, an Adventist perspective, is kind of familiar. Um, you know, when I one of the on one of my trips, I was in the Jewish quarter, sort of you know mid to late Friday afternoon, and you know people are shutting up their shops, and um, you know kids are all having their baths and getting dressed up nicely, and everybody gets the you know tidying done, and the the bakeries are selling Sabbath cakes and special Sabbath bread. And it kind of, to me, felt felt a little bit like experiences I'd had growing up and being at Seventh-day Adventist camp meetings. Um, that uh. sense of pre- preparation for Sabbath and that something special is about to happen and that this is what we've been waiting for all week. Mm. And we, from my perspective as a Sabbath keeper, having grown up with those kind of traditions in my own home and, you know, still, you know, practicing them in some way or another, um, it was kind of familiar at the same time as it was completely foreign. And that's kind of that tension that you were there, that in some ways you, you wanted to run into the crowd and join in and say, yeah, I'm part of this. 
And then another part of it said, yeah, this is really weird and I would have no idea what to do if I did jump into the middle of the crowd. <laughs> so do you bring uh, little flags to church now and wave them about while you're singing praise and worship? Yeah, not so much. Context is important. Absolutely. Hey, <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't help um, but ask this question. You, you kind of... In, in the opening chapters, you make reference to this a few times, your sort of initial skepticism in visiting um, the Holy Lands, you know, the whole commercial aspect, particularly <laughs> the, the commercialization, the, the um, yeah, this, the, you know, trying to make a quick buck out of this, that and the other thing. Yeah. How do, I know you, 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 you kind of talk about that and expand that over there, but what was your experience like um, in that yeah. aspect? And that was when I first was offered, a friend of mine was the first time I went was offering, you know, he said, I've got a couple of places to fill in this trip. Would you and Ange want to come um, with us? And I'd kind of always been really hesitant about it and just, you know, can it hold up? You know, you're so far away from the stories themselves, you know, and they're, su they're such important stories to us. You know, what do we hope to get from it? Um and, of course, you get there and if you find what you're looking for to some degree. Um, mm. But so can be a little bit cynical and also a little bit entertained by some of the, um, you know, the, the souvenir stores and gift shops along the way. And the reality is that the more important the place is, the, more the, the, the bigger the gift store, basically. Um, and mm. all you know, the trashy souvenirs that you can get and the very nice souvenirs as well. But, you know, I guess the... the top you know the, the the pinnacle of it all is being able to buy your own crown of thorns as you make your way along the via wow. della russa wow uh, you know and all these market stalls that you know are just stacked with all this stuff and um you know they they're catering to the crowds and you know there are people that you know that's a part of their experience that's a part of you know some of it i'm sure is a part of what you do as a pilgrim um and, you know, you need to, for me, it's easy to be cynical and you need to be careful that you don't let being cynical get in the way of appreciating what is meaningful to other people, but also doesn't distract you from what can be meaningful to you in some of those places. So that's a constant tension is just that reality. But, you know, the, even, the, even the places that most of the tours go to are all the same and they are tradition. You know, the reason that the certain tour goes a certain way is because, you know, um, Constantine's mother, St. Helena, back in the 4th century, did a tour of the Holy Land and basically went around and tried to identify various places that had, um, that various parts of the story of Jesus had happened. And um, churches were then built in some of those places. And so many of, so much of the, the, the tourist circuit or the pilgrim circuit, depending on how you want to call it, is still based on that, you know, the map that she drew. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, and of course there is reality to some of it and um, a lot of it it's either tradition or it's the best guess that we can have. And, um, yeah, and then, of course, even, you know, as important as the place where Jesus was buried, you can visit both of his tombs in the one day because they're walking distance apart from each other. <laughs> and, um, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, um, you know, a big old, you know, massively old um, church. And then just outside the, the current old city walls is the um, 
garden tomb, which is much nicer place, but probably far less likely to have been the place where Jesus was buried. Mm. It's interesting because that that whole discussion kind of like there's the commercialization aspect, but there's also there there seems to be as you kind of you know weave through the story almost a mythological aspect. Like yeah. as you mentioned <laughs> with you know Constantine's mother, how much of the Holy Land tour that you actually experience is is like how much of it is historical locations and how much of it is well, we, we put a church here and now we've created a story around this church and we've kind of expanded the original story that was there. And so now you have almost like, did you find mm. that there's almost like two holy lands? There's like the quote unquote real holy land and then there's the sort of the mytho- <laughs> mythologic, mythological fantasy sort of, uh, you know, yeah. we're kind of taking the story a little bit extra sort of version. Yeah. The reality is that there's so few places that we can be definitely sure that this was the spot. I mean, that's why, particularly on all the tours that I've been on, going to the Sea of Galilee is everybody breathes a sigh of relief and says, you can't argue with the lake. The lake is the lake. <laughs> and it's not too big for someone to have moved in the intervening years. Um, so, yeah, there's those kind of things. And there's a few very spe- specific places that you visit tend to visit that, yeah, I've re- you know, they are the places because there aren't any other options. Um, but when you, you know, most of the um, most of the places are approximations or, are, um, you know, something that is the traditional site and traditional site has always kind of got air quotes around it um, because it means that, you know, someone decided this would be the place where we would celebrate this story. And... So that's got a, you know, and there's reasons why that was the place. So, you know, you might go to, um, you know, somewhere by the lake. There's um, the place of um, Peter's Primacy, it's called, um, which is supposedly the place where Jesus cooked breakfast by the lake um, after his resurrection in John 21, I think it is. And um, it's a beautiful place. It's um yeah, you know, it's the place. You, you know, it's a great place to pause and re- remember that story and think of what an incredible thing it was that Jesus, you know, resurrected God. You know, all of the crazy things that that means that Jesus would just pull up on the beach to his confused and tired and disappointed fishermen friends and um, cook them breakfast. Mm-hmm. And so you you can either quibble about the place and say, yeah, probably not. Who who could ever know? Or you can just sit by the lake and go, what an incredible story. And um, sometimes you've just got to switch off the critic and just take those moments. Mm. I think I was thinking about it. I think I would struggle to to turn off the critic. Mainly I, there was one part of me that was like I would struggle doing this trip and that was when you noted that in Jesus's hometown, there is a McDonald's and a KFC. At that point, I was like, how do I reconcile these two things? You know, Jesus's hometown has McDonald's and a KFC in it now. What is that? It feels dirty, you know. But, but on the <laughs> other side of that, that, to me, there's also a glory in that because that actually makes it a real place. It's a place that we can identify. And Jesus came from a town like ours. Uh, that's a good way to look at it. I just, to me... When I've explained that to people, I've said, you know, actually, that's just because it's an ordinary town. 
And and isn't it incredible that God would come? Yeah, of course, it wasn't a town that had a McDonald's or a KFC in those days. It was probably a town of you know, maybe a dozen to 20 houses. So it was a tiny village up on the top of the hill. Um, but it was just an ordinary place. There was nothing about it that you'd say, you know, which is why some of the people said, well, what's going to come from Nazareth? You know, what's special about that? And so hmm. it was just, you know, it was just nowheresville in the middle of nowhere and God turned up there and that kind of boggles my mind. Hmm. Are there any particular moments in the biblical narrative that have fundamentally changed for you as a result of your experiences there? Uh, yes, <laughs> quite a few, I'd say, because now I have my own stories of those places. And so when you hear those um those examples, you know, when you hear that story read, you, you actually have pictures in your own mind from your own experience of that place that are another layer. They aren't the story itself, but they're an experience that is connected to that story. Um, one of the places that I uh, particularly, I guess, that, that the place particularly illuminates the story of is the story when Jesus was with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi and um you know, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And they gave him all the pat answers from what the crowd says. And he really pushed them and said, so who do you say I am? And then Peter declared, you are the son of God. And Jesus went on to say, you know, you're right. And it's on this rock that I'll build my church and that, um, you know, the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, at Caesarea Philippi is a place called the gates of Hades. And it was a place of pilgrim sorry, of pagan sacrifice. And there was quite a number of shrines there that were built to the Roman gods, which is kind of the Caesarea kind of thing. It was a Roman pagan uh, town, which is a curious place for Jesus to um, to have been, when he, particularly when he's asking this kind of question, because it's the kind of question that should be asked and answered in Jerusalem, not somewhere up in the, in the outback pagan kind of places. And when he references the gates of Hades, he's looking, you know, potentially he's looking over at this place, this this place of pagan worship where they would throw the sacrifices into this cave and the river of, and it's the headwater, one of the headwaters of the Jordan River where the river just comes up, bubbles up out of the bottom of this cliff. And so they would throw the um, sacrifices in there and when the sacrifice you know, and it was kind of considered that this was the God accepting their sacrifice, the river would then bubble up with the blood of the sacrifice. Oh. Um, which is a fascinating kind of thing when you know, we have this. Yeah. Um, but this is, so like, the place informs the the reference that Jesus is making there. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that is a favorite is um, we visited the uh, Jacob's Well, which is where Jesus confronted the woman at the well, um, you know, just out of, um, well, it's outside what, or on, on the on the edge of the city of Nablus today, but it was um, Shechem in the time of Jacob when he built a well there and Sychar in the time of Jesus. And um, we visited the well. It's in the bottom of a Greek, Greek Orthodox church. You go downstairs into a basement and there's this well, which they believe as much as it can be believed that this was the original well that Jacob and his people would have dug uh, with and um, you can still put a bucket down and about 40 meters down you can pull up some water and you can still drink it and um, mm-hmm. and you can also buy a jar of it and take it home with you as a holy relic. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but uh, across the road, you get off the bus and you go into the, um, the, the monastery and then into the church. Uh, but across the road from it, directly across the road from it, is the largest uh, refugee camp in the Palestinian territories. And, you know, Jesus, in coming and talking to this woman, was talking to an outsider of the outsiders. You know, he, they, she was the Samaritan. She was, you know, and he's the, this is the longest conversation that he's recorded as having in the Bible uh, or in all the Gospels. And, you know, it's to her that he first proclaims himself the Messiah. And um, you just kind of read the context of that and look at that by looking across the road and looking at these Palestinian refugees who have been, re you know, the refugee settlement has been there for you know, uh, about 60 years um, or seven, almost 70 years now from 1950. And, um, you know, 30,000 people live in really tight, dense, you know, run-down kind of sub... It looks like a suburb, but it is still classified as a refugee camp. And um, you just go, well, where would Jesus fit in this story if he was here today? And, of course, you know, when he w went out of his way to hang out with the outsider of the outsiders or the outcast of the outcasts, I think he'd be kind of hanging out with the refugees and and even the outcasts among the refugee community, and that should change how we look at some of those kind of places and some of those stories in our world today. Mm, yeah, that's that's pretty confronting thought. I think a lot of the time in church we like everything to sort of be clean, neat, and deodorized. Do you know what I mean? It's not the outsiders of the outsiders that you necessarily think of when you think of, um, I don't know, the the church community or your your church family. Mm. Yeah, and that's where Jesus, when you, when we spend time with the stories of Jesus, it confronts us and it pushes us and it, it should be, you know, and I think, you know, one of the challenges, one of the privileges that I've had in my life is growing up in church and um, of hearing the stories of Jesus from when I was, you know, as long as I can remember. And yeah. those stories are probably the most dominant stories in my entire life. Because I was told Bible stories more often than I was told stories about my family, for example. Mm. And so, you know, that's such a thing that's formed us. But the challenge that we have that comes with this familiarity is that it becomes too familiar and so we think we know what it means. And particularly if we read them as kid stories and if we learn them as kid stories, we miss so much of the depth to them. Mm. And so... And there's, then there's also these nice little layers that people like Uncle Arthur and VeggieTales and everybody in between <laughs> have added to Bible stories that actually aren't really there, but they help it make it a good kid story. Yeah. Mm. So we need to go back and look at them in their ugliness and their messiness and their confrontingness. And you know, I, that's really the takeaway from the book as far as I can, I'm concerned that, you know, and and I actually have done this on uh, you know after I got back from the trip was simply sit down and read the gospels again, mm. and to try and it, you know it's not not completely possible to read them for the first time all over again, but we need to keep challenging ourselves on that to read them in new ways and to read them from new perspectives and to to go as deeply as we can with our. You know, it doesn't mean that we all get a PhD in biblical studies or ancient languages or anything <laughs> like that, but it simply means that we spend the time to actually engage with the stories as they're told uh, as something foreign, but also as something that has something to say to us. Mm. You have mm. a really um, great sort of conclusion wrap-up, which I'm 
as you as you alluded to, I'm I'm assuming is something that kind of evolved and grew and emerged over time. Um, I want to ask you about that, but before I do, um, mm. let's say that I'm you know considering going to the Holy Land. You know, I'm gonna book, <laughs> I'm gonna book my ticket. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna join a, a tour group. You know, I'm gonna do it. What advice mm. would you give to me, the 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 first timer, the newbie? Um, <laughs> what what advice would you give to me if I was if I was to do that? Yeah. Um, firstly, if you have the opportunity, yes, do it. Um, and you know, I wrote this book firstly for people who will never have the opportunity to do it. Secondly, it may actually inspire some people to say, "Hey, I could actually do that." And you know, that could be something that can add something to my experience and my understanding of the, these stories of Jesus. Um, and then the third people, third kind of group that I was writing for was those who have done it but just want to stop and think about it again because it can be such a whirlwind when you're doing it um, that it kind of does take time to process and to think through and to wrestle with. And, and you can go and do it like a trip. You can do any other. You know, my experience of travelling in Israel has been that it's a great place to travel, um, great food, um, wandering along the beach in Tel Aviv with the Mediterranean Sea is a beautiful thing to do. You know, you can ignore all the Bible things and have a great holiday. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a, you know, I've eaten some of the best food I've eaten anywhere in my life on, on trips over there. Um, and, um, you know, so there's lots to explore. There's lots, so much history that, it, and so it could, could, you can, enjoy it on a superficial level you can get blown away by it and overwhelmed by it on a deeper level um so it's simply to take the time to probably um i would suggest as a recommendation is to find the right tour guide because i think that makes makes a difference um mm. and you know different tour guides have different approaches and um, you'll get told different things by different tour guides <laughs> and, um, so i yeah, I'd talk to people that have gone before and perhaps try and find the best tour to go on to make it really work, the, make the most use of that investment because it's an expensive and, you know, costly thing to do. Um, but then also be prepared to to be challenged and to, to think about things differently along the way and when you return. And the other thing is just use the, the Bible as, the, as your textbook for doing it and to, um, you know, particularly the Gospels. Uh, what, so a couple of uh, people in our group, they, they were, their journey was 16 days. They had a couple of days, I think, on the way where they stopped over and you know got over their jet lag and that kind of thing before they jumped into the tour. So they had 16 days and they said, okay, we've got 16 days away. There's 16 chapters in the book of Mark, so we're going to read one of them every day. Oh, okay. um, cool. Yeah, you know, just a way to be working through the story at the same time you're walking through the story. And that, you know, to bring those two things together in an intentional way, I think, is good. And if you're so disposed to journal your way through it or to write a book about it, if if you insist, um, <laughs> I actually recommend that as a thing to really engage with it deeply and get the most out of it. So it mm. was a to me more than anybody else. But I know other people in our group, you know, in, in some of our groups weren't quite as, you know, uh, hardcore about having to write as much as I was trying to write, but they certainly were journaling and just making notes and recording, you know, to so that they've got different things to uh, reflect on when they return. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Um, I love I love how you 
interweave throughout this whole narrative. Um, it's called Of Falafels and Following Jesus. And for those of us in the Adventist world, if you are up on the literature, obviously that's a clear reference to Peter Rowenfeld's book and you yeah. make, you make reference to that quite a bit. He was on the trip with you and all that sort of stuff. He was a trip leader, yeah. He was a trip leader, right, of course. And your thesis, which you kind of, you hint at and you hint at and then you kind of just like, you, you spring it on us like at the in that very last um, <laughs> the very last chapter that so here's the spoiler alert <laughs> yeah yeah I don't want to give away the rest of the, the the whole book but it is an interesting idea this this concept that you bring up the transition between being um, a tourist and a pilgrim do you want to talk a little bit about about that what that was like for you on a personal level yeah and I think that. Uh... I mean, I've actually previously in, in my literary studies in the past have, have actually done reading in an academic kind of sense about what's the difference between a tourist and a pilgrim. And, um, yeah, I think it's a reality of how, how we choose to, I mean, to use different language, we might be talking about how present we are in a moment or how, you know, you know how much we're engaged with the experiences that we're having and, you know, why we do what we do. Um, and, yeah, I think that um, the bigger call is actually to live our lives with the attitudes of pilgrims, that we, you know, seek transformation in our lives for the purposes of then going uh, back to the world around us to serve and to live out what we've discovered. And I certainly think that, you know, we kind of, you know, pilgrimage has got all sorts of different meanings in different faith traditions but I think in the best sense of the word, the point of going on a pilgrimage is to go home again, different, to be changed by the experience, that you've kind of encountered something that has changed how you will live back home. So the tourist is about the moment and, you know, maybe getting the photos and, you know, having a good time and all of those kind of things. And all of those, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But pilgrim is taking a step deeper and... Um, seeking that there's something in the journey that changes us for the purposes of our lives back home. Because a pilgrimage is a step out of our normal lives. Uh, it's a step, um, you know, we, we break our usual routines. We, we do something intentional and different because we want an intentional and different outcome. And so then the point of it, is not self-centered in that way. It's actually how it changes how we live and thus, you know, in the Christian story, how we serve, how we love our neighbors, how we serve, you know, engage with our communities and, um, you know, seek to make the world a different place because of the experience that we've had. Mm, wow. Oh, that is cool. I love that. I love that. <laughs> uh, really good. Well, um, we're kind of running out of time um so yeah i guess just to finish off thank you so much for all that you've shared with us um do you want to just plug um you know what what um yeah where, where, where can people find the book um what else is going on from signs that you might want to share with us yeah um well the simple way to find the book is to go to the, it's, the book has its own website um Ooh. falafels and following jesus.com so it's a very long one, but that makes it unique. So, you know, mm. that's the advantage of a long title. So yeah. <laughs> if you're followingjesus.com, you can order it from a number of different places, and there's a couple of links on that website. Um, even just 
you know, if you put that in and um, search for it as a book, it'll come up on a few different booksellers. It uh, should be available at a good Adventist bookstore near you, uh, <laughs> but also available at other from other outlets and is available also as an ebook um, on Amazon. So uh, a few different ways to access it. On the website, there's also some other opportunities to engage with the book and some of the ideas behind it. There's um, some video clips of some of the places that we visited. There's some uh, photos that are kind of organised by chapter. So you can kind of go there and cool. you know, follow along a few of the, you know, maybe half a dozen photos that go with the key places that we visited in each chapter uh, and a few other background information about, you know, the book and why it exists and what we did and all those kind of things. So I uh, recommend checking that out. And, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, buy one for everyone you know. Um, <laughs> as a, if you buy it from an Adventist book centre in Australia and New Zealand, make sure you ask them for the bookmark that goes with it because there's a falafels recipe on the back of the bookmark. Ooh. Uh, so you can taste it too. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so that's so fun. cool. I've had a couple of people uh, criticise me for the book in that, you know, you've called it falafels, but there's hardly anything about falafels in it. <laughs> well, you know, that's because they were just what we ate along the way. It wasn't a big deal. It was just part of the experience. <laughs> I bought this and I thought it was I thought it was going to be a cooking book with Jesus, but it's not. It's so ripped off. That's right. Rather than cooking with Jamie Oliver, it's cooking with Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, that's, um Yeah. So that's an extra, extra uh, um, bonus extra if you buy it from the right outlet. Nice. Um, or, of course, yeah. you can find your own falafel uh, recipe and just <laughs> make them while you're reading the book and you'll have the experience as well. Awesome. Uh, so <laughs> uh, lots of great food involved. Um, I'll plug another book while we're at it. I have another new book called For the Least of These, um, which is also available from similar outlets. Um, and that just came out in the last... Um, I guess month or two. Oh, congratulations! And and that's um, focused very much on um, how we deal with other folks and how we respond to injustice in the world and the difference we should be making as a church. So I think it actually works pretty well. If you read one, then read the next one. You've got the kind of the experience and the the pilgrim kind of journey, and then you've got mm. the application of what what our following Jesus should call us to as far as making a difference in the world and making sure that our communities are better places because we are there. Hmm. So that's a couple of things. I won't give you the whole list because there shouldn't be a book catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want you to tell us all 15, 14 books that you've co-authored, edited or written. <laughs> yeah, Just Google, you'll find it. <laughs> well, awesome. hey, um, Nathan, this has been a really, really great conversation. Thank you for taking the time out. Um, thank you for um, all your ministry and you know the awesome books that you've you've authored and yeah just being able to share this experience i know that i have the travel travel bug for the for the middle east for the holy lands now so thank you so much for that i'm going to be in agony until i can actually taste it for myself but uh, no thank you once you do it we'll have to compare notes and um yeah thank you for the opportunity to talk about it and i do yeah i think this this you know i'm i'm interested in your larger project of burning haystacks and i um i think that there is an element that when we go back and really encounter the stories, there's a few haystacks that need to be burnt, uh, but there's also some really good stuff that is at the core of it that we'll recover. And, um, you know, sometimes when we shift the haystacks, that's when we can find 
um, the true the true Jesus that we are called to follow and and the difference that he can truly make in our lives and our world and if going to the Middle East is one way to do that well I recommend it And there you have it. That was our chat with Nathan Brown. What a great chat that was. I just, throughout that entire interview, I was just blown away continually by just the, the amount of detail and the, the self-reflection. As we said in the intro, just the amount of reflection in those different areas. Um, that one bit where he's talking about the gates of Hades up in the, the mm. north of Galilee, that was like, that, that lent a whole new um, perspective to that biblical narrative. Like, we know that Bible verse, you know, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But I didn't realize the exact, the, the, the physical, archaeological, you know, context. And that's just, yeah, it brought such a fresh understanding to my, to my understanding. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yes. Uh, and as well, I think he's such a wordsmith, obviously, being, a, being an editor and a writer, um, yeah, I I just love his his word choices at times too. I just think he really is, he's really good at picking the right word to describe something, and I just I don't know. For me at least, that's a really cool skill because I use a lot of basic words. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that I've been I, something that I've been really intentional about trying to do is removing the word very from yeah. my vocabulary. That's something that, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just something that you know, it's 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 just comes out so automatically and yet when i read something like you know what nathan wrote because that's the last book that i read just the amount of you know wording that gets put into describing these things is just so rich and it just makes me want to be more rich i don't know (laughs) if that's the right word i'm sick (laughs) i'm sure you guys can guess i'm sick so my brain's not working (laughs) yeah No, I mean, that's, it's cool. I mean, I have someone at my church and he always says things are just terrific. And I'm like, it's a great word because it's sort of lost. <laughs> Most of the time, someone will say, oh, it was really good. But he'll just say, it was terrific. I'm like, hmm, yes, hmm. that's a better word than really good. You know, that sort of. I like that. Vocabulary is a good thing. Do do <laughs> some more of it, people. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, um, definitely recommend uh, you guys check out that book of falafels and following Jesus. We really enjoyed it. And if you're the sort of person who has an interest in archaeology or the Holy Land, I think you really like it too. Yeah, absolutely. And for all things Burn the Haystack, make sure you go to burnthehaystack.org. And also, a special reminder to uh, join our Facebook community. It's um, mm. The special password is Poppy, Poppy Gloria. <laughs> may, she re- <laughs> may she rest in peace. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, anyway, this is... <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a dumb meme to have put people onto now, but anyway, Poppy Gloria, it's actually, make sure you, huh? It's actually like getting, you know, it's getting more traction ever since the rise of the notorious Mary Ham, who we all hate at Burn the Haystack. Here, <laughs> we are we are against Mary Ham. We we remember and we stand in solidarity with you, Poppy Gloria. By the way, with with the Facebook group, I have been noticing a lot of people have been wanting to join, but they haven't answered the secret password. So. If you don't have the secret password, you can't join the group. We will not so, let you in unless you prove that you know what the secret password is. We Why are we be... doing this? We'll answer that another time. <laughs> We're just really exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> we are. No, it's because Facebook groups, oh, especially Adventist ones, to be honest, they get just so overloaded with people who they don't 
they don't actually pay attention to any of the source material that the group is based on. Do you know what I mean? Like there's lots yep. of people who just jump into Facebook groups and just debate everything. We don't want that. So that's why there's a secret password for only people who actually listen. And it's the very end of the episode. So you <laughs> have to have it's, actually listened to know the yeah. password. Yeah. Um, and if you uh, haven't already subscribed to Burn the Haystack, we would love it if you would do that on just iTunes. Do it. On Stitcher, Google Podcasts, just what, what do you have to lose? It's yeah. free. Yeah, and that's a great price. <laughs> Not convinced? I'll cut you a deal. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Uh, it's available now on Apple Podcasts for free. And that's a great price. <laughs> Perfect. All right, that is Josh and Jesse out. <laughs>